Let's pray one more time. We're going to get into Matthew chapter 16. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for today. Thank you for the people of God that you have made and called unto yourself. Thank you that you didn't leave us in the ditch, but you picked us out of it. You set our feet upon a rock and you put a new song in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we sing that song this morning. Now help us in your word. Grow us, encourage us for this new year. It's in Jesus' name. Every Christian said, amen. Matthew chapter 16, we're beginning a new four-part series. We do this. If you are, you've been around a while. We've been a church since, we've been Four Points Church since 2008. Some of you have been here since then. You might be saying, Brent, Vision Series every January. I know this stuff like the back of my hand. Let's stop doing this. Uh, We get it already. Here's what I want to say to you. Can you teach it? If you can't teach it, listen one more time. And listen to with the intensity. Don't just listen and shake your head and say, that's good. Listen with the intentions that you have to walk out of here and teach someone else this. Because that's what we need. Our small group leaders, our forge leaders, our dweller. We need more people who are able to share the mission and the vision of God on planet Earth with articu- with, uh, in, in a way that is articulate, in a way that is logical, in a way that makes sense. So listen intently like you have to teach this next year. You never know. I might just stand up next year in January and say, hey, you've been here 10 years. Come on up here and preach this sermon. Honestly, that kind of is an awesome idea. (laughs) So listen good. For those of you who are new or visiting, I'm so glad you're here. Because you've probably been to a lot of other churches. And how many of you have been to that church where every year something's different, right? Some new book comes out on the Christian marketplace. Some new conference comes on where somebody's saying, you got to do this or you got to do that. And just every, they're bouncing all over the place. Aren't, don't you get tired of being ping-ponged around? Man, I thought our vision was this over here. Now we're doing this. I, I was caring about this over here. Now we're, we're going over here. Here's what I got to tell you who are new or visiting. Our vision, our mission hasn't changed in 15 years. We're doing the same thing that we've been doing from the very beginning, and we're going to be doing this same thing until the day we close our eyes and breathe our last breath because our mission and vision doesn't originate from the Christian marketplace, which, by the way, is... Our mission and vision doesn't originate in the mind of man or in the mind of a group of people. Our mission and our vision originates from God's word. Right? There's no better mission or vision, right? And we need vision, don't we? Without vision, people perish. Habakkuk says, write down the vision. God speaks and says, write this down so that the people may run with it. We do this every year in January so that we hear what God says and we're all running. Not, but we're all running in the same direction. God's mission should be our mission. God's vision should be our vision, amen? And if nothing else, if you're like, Brent, you tell too many jokes, I don't like this church. The next church you find, this should be the mission and vision there too. If it's not, keep going to the next church and to the next church and to the next church until you find this mission and this vision because it comes from the mouth of the Lord. Let's read Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district 
of Caesarea Philippi. Some of you might be saying, I've never heard, I thought it was Caesarea Philippi. Check Strong's Diction Tool, it's Caesarea Philippi. I have been saying Caesarea for like 20 years. I know it sounds weird to me too, but it's Caesarea. Jesus is bringing his, his disciples, these 12 men he's called personally to follow him. And they've been calling him rabbi and they've been following him. But now Jesus is bringing them to a place that is questionable. When you walk towards Caesarea Philippi, You feel spiritual darkness the closer you get to the city. It is a place of pagan worship. It has been for hundreds of years. Baal has been worshipped in this area for hundreds of years. At the close of Malachi, the, the um, the last prophet of the Old Testament period who wrote the last book of the Old Testament, there a period uh, between then and Jesus' birth is called the intertestamental period or the silent period. God told Malachi, tell the people, I'm not going to send any more prophets. I'm not going to speak again. This is it. You know exactly what you're to be looking for. The son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. Nothing else is going to happen until the Messiah comes. And 400 years, God didn't speak. All they had was the, the Old Testament prophets and their prophecies about the coming Messiah that they were leaning on. During that time, Baal stopped being worshipped and a, and a God named Pan began being worshipped in this area. In fact, during that time, the area was called Panea. And if you've ever seen a depiction of Pan, he's like the fawn, Mr. Thomas from Narnia. It's probably where C.S. Lewis got the idea. But Pan was, how many know what a centaur is? Right? Again, Narnia, we're doing some C.S. Lewis this morning. Body of a horse with the torso, arms, and head of a man is a centaur. Well, Pan is depicted as the body of a goat with the torso, arms, and head of a man, but out of the head of a man are are two goat horns spiraling upward. Pan had an army of nymphs that were also carved into the mountain there in Caesarea Philippi, and the people worshipped Pan there. And there were all kinds of pagan rituals and disgusting acts with actual livestock that happened in the worship of this goat god named Pan. And so as the disciples are coming toward this area, they're thinking, what in God's name? Why would Jesus be bringing us here? You know, before James David graduated and and went off to college, we decided to take one last family road trip. This is just to give you some perspective of this. So we went out west. I mean, the big western family, 5,000 miles in this town and country, Chrysler, six people, miserable but we did it by God, and we'd do it again. We got lots of good pictures. But we, we you know, Colorado and Utah and California, the whole day. We're going through Nevada. We were like, we have to stop by Vegas. The kids have to at least see Las Vegas. So everything was good as we drove in in the afternoon. Everything's bright and shiny. Kids are like, oh, there's the last Statue of Liberty. Look at the pyramid. Woo! We went to the pawn shop, the Pawn Stars pawn shop. I bought a widow's mite there. It was awesome. We went to the Venetian because that's kind of the family-friendly place that that you can go in. It's got a canal. It looks like Little Italy. It's got a canal with gondolas. It's a big mall, uh, rare bookstores. I mean, just really cool stuff in there. We had a big time. Everything was great. 
We go to the hotel, we check in, and, and we're Marriott people, so we're a little off the strip. And then, you know, it became dark. We had dinner, and it got dark, and Sarah and I were like, we have, they, they have to see the fountain at the Bellagio. They have to see it. So we're like, come on, kids. And everybody's like, yeah, let's go. Woo! We get out, and no problems up front because we're not on the strip. We walk about two blocks down to the strip, take a left to go to the Bellagio, and that's when my family just became this amorphous blob. It was like every sphincter in the family just tightened up all at once. <laughs> if you're a Baptist, I'm sorry. Just give me some grace. Right, I mean, my kids had never seen anything like the Las Vegas Strip at night. And I'm just like, it's okay, it's, it's okay. We're almost there, you know, a couple blocks down, we get to the Bellagio. They couldn't appreciate the fountain at all. They were looking around like someone was fixing to snatch them and take them away. <laughs> Some kind of Liam Neeson taken scenario. We go inside the Bellagio. You know, we're there. You got to see it. Got to have the crepes of the Bellagio. Uh, so we're in line. We're waiting in line to get these crepes. And, and uh, James David was like, Dad, I don't want a crepe. Let's just go. I don't want a crepe. And I was like, you're going to have a crepe. You're going to be able to tell your kids you've had crepes at the Bellagio. <laughs> he, wouldn't, he, he was like, no, don't give me one. I just want to go home. I want to go back to the hotel. I mean, it was crazy. But you could, my kids have never been in that kind of environment. They can sense the, the darkness, the spiritual darkness, the sin, the work of Satan all around them. And they didn't know what to do with it. All they want to do was get back to the hotel. We had the same experience when we hit 10 and all through Texas. And we got to uh, Louisiana, to New Orleans, which is the way you say it. It's not New Orleans. It's New Orleans. And again, I'm just thinking, right, we're tourists and we got to go to the French Quarter. We got to get a beignet. We're in, we're in New Orleans. My kids, Briar wouldn't get out of the car. Look, this is in the daytime. We're like a couple blocks from Burbage. We didn't even try to go there. Just wouldn't have it. This is what's happening here. As they get closer to, I mean, the, the disciples know the area. As they are getting closer and closer, they're like, where do you think he's taking us? <laughs> or we're, we're pretty close to the, the pan god. We're pretty close to where they're doing unspeakable acts with animals. And sure enough, they come right up on these temples that Herod the Great had built when Caesar Augustus uh, gave. By the way, uh, Panea became Caesar uh, Caesarea Philippi when Herod the Great died and gave it to his son, whose name was Philip. And don't people love to name towns after themselves? So they're, they're, they're here. They're looking down on these white marble temples that Herod the Great had built for the worship of Pan. And they can't believe that Jesus would take them to this kind of place. But it's this kind of place that Jesus takes his disciples to teach them an important truth about light and darkness, about the world, and about the kingdom of God that is coming. When Jesus came, he asked his disciples a question. Now they get there, and Jesus asks his disciples a question. And he says, who do people say that I am? Which seems like a weird question. 
I mean, imagine Christmas, think back to Christmas dinner. You got aunts and uncles, cousins are there, brothers and sisters, right? All, all the families gathered around the table, and you kind of have this Clark Griswold moment where you stand up and ding, ding, ding. Just wondering, uh, what are people saying? Who are people saying that I am? And of course, all your family would look around like, is this a trick question? Is this a joke? Nobody's talking about you, man. But that's not, the, that's not the way it was for Jesus. Everybody was talking about Jesus. Isn't it funny how people are still talking about Jesus today? Not Christians. Everybody's talking about Jesus. It was just a few years ago, a Muslim scholar named Reza Aslan wrote a book about Jesus. You know you can trust a Muslim scholar when it comes to who Jesus is. Right, we got Brad Pitt, Madonna back in the in the, the 90s wearing Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. We got people saying he was a great teacher, he was a moral leader, he was he was a good man. But some say he's God. People were talking about Jesus then, people are talking about Jesus still today, 2,000 years later. Well, here's how the disciples answered. They were like, Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Which is kind of weird because John the Baptist and Jesus were both cousins and contemporaries. They lived at the same time. So why would anybody say he's John the Baptist? Because Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist told all his followers to follow Jesus. He must decrease so Jesus can increase. And and John the Baptist fell uh, into into the abyss and ended up in prison and lost his head. So some people were saying that Jesus was kind of the, the new John the Baptist. Others were saying he was Elijah. Now think in the Hebrew framework, when you're reading the Old Testament, who's like the prophet of prophets? I mean, Elijah uh, is calling fire down from heaven on the prophets of Baal. He's this powerful, uh, well-spoken prophet. So some people are looking at Jesus' ministry, and he's speaking with an authority. Like the scribes and Pharisees don't even speak with the authority that Jesus is speaking with. And he backs up this preaching with these signs and these miracles. So some people were saying, well, he must be Elijah. Others were saying he's like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, or, or one of the other prophets. Or, right? Everybody had an opinion about Jesus. Then everybody has an opinion about Jesus now. And that's when Jesus puts the finger right in the individual chest of each one of his disciples. Who do people say I am? Well, this, that, the other... Then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Verse 15. This is the question that each and every one of us in this room must answer. And some people, I've talked to a lot of people that say, you can't back me into a corner. I'm not going to make a decision about Jesus. Let me tell you something. Indifference is a decision. And you will be held accountable for how you answer this question or fail to answer this question. The great line of C.S. Lewis is he, is he, he's either one of three things, Lord, liar, or lunatic. Who is he to you? Who do you say I am? And this is when Simon Peter steps out of the crowd to speak first, as is his modus operandi. He's usually the one to speak first. Simon Peter, verse 16, replied, 
And this is, this is called the Great Confession. It's the first time in the Gospels that the disciples verbally declare who they believe Jesus to be. They've been calling him rabbi. They've been following him. They've seen what he's been doing. But this is the first time in Matthew where Simon Peter comes out. Who do you say that I am? I know who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, for those of you who are new to Bible study, you might think that Christ is Jesus' last name. It is not. Both Christ and son are titles. Don't think of father and son as fathers and son uh, that we have today. Uh, but think of that signet ring we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, uh, Christ means anointed one. Christ means uh, the one whom God sends, the one whom God promised to send to save his people from their sin. And the son of the living God means that all authority, all the power that the father has belongs to the son. He is the representative of the father on planet earth, the equal representative on, of God on planet earth. It's where the Jehovah Witnesses get that son word wrong. It's not, a, it's not a, a relationship. It's a title. It's a messianic title. Here's what Peter says. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter says, I, I got this. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You're the one born of woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. The first messianic prophecy from Genesis chapter 316. You are the rose of Sharon. You're the lily of the valley. You're the one we've been waiting for. The wonderful counselor, mighty God. You are Messiah. Come to save us from our sins and bring your kingdom to earth. It's a powerful statement. It's one that not everybody on earth makes. It's not one that everybody on earth can see. Everybody knows Jesus. Everybody hears his name. Everybody's read books about him. But not everybody understands like Simon Peter understands here. You are the Christ. My only hope. And so here's how Jesus responds. And appreciate this. Because this is the way it works every time. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And remember, his name was Simon. Bar means son. Simon, son of Jonah is all that means. But Jesus says, Blessed are you. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Remember John chapter 3. That which is born of flesh can only be flesh. To be born again into the kingdom of God, you must be born of the Spirit. Jesus said, blessed are you. Here's what he said in shorthand. Simon, you answered correctly, and I know you didn't get there on your own. <laughs> right? I know you, Simon. You're not that bright. <laughs> You wouldn't have got there on your own. You had to have help as we all need help to see Jesus correctly. Right? Like Paul, we all need the scales of this world to fall off of our eyes and we can't remove those. But the Father, through the power of his Spirit, removes scales and, and reveals to us who Jesus If you know who Jesus is, if you could say he's Lord this morning, it's because the Father has blessed and helped you as well. So many can't see. 
Blessed are you, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We just read in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Jesus goes on in verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. Now underline that, because that word in the Greek is Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. And upon this Rock, which is the word, it's a different word. It's the word Petra, P-E-T-R-A. Petros, he says, he says, Simon, you are Peter. You are Petros. You are, that word means a rock or a pebble. A rock that you can pick up off the ground and hold in your hand. A pebble that you can take and skip across the Sea of Galilee. You are little rock. Is, is God going to use Peter in magnificent, mighty ways for the gospel and the kingdom of God? Yes and amen. I tell you, you are little rock, Peter. And on this Petra. Now, we all know what Petra means. It's an 80s Christian rock band. <laughs> that, in, from my perspective, was not very good. I remember as a young kid trying to listen to it. I just couldn't get into it. But we didn't have many choices back then. It was Petra or Carmen. Right? That's about it. I'll never forget when Striper came out. And they had a couple albums that Dad bought me. But I remember, you remember, I can't remember if it was their second or, or their junior album. It was called To Hell with the Devil. And I remember being in the Christian bookstore. I'll never forget my dad's face. I was like, Dad, please, please, please. And my dad just looked at this tape, and he was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Petra means rock, but rock as in mountain, ledge, cliff, rock that is immovable. So is Peter the immovable rock? No, Peter's a stone that can be taken up and thrown. But on this rock, what is the immovable mountain? It is the confession of Peter that Jesus, in fact, is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. Peter, you are a rock. I'm going to use you, but it is upon this immovable stone, this confession. The Father has helped you know who I am. And upon that rock, that confession, I'm going to do something. So upon our understanding of knowing who Jesus is, Jesus himself is going to do something that we can't do. He is going to, he says, I will build my church. The word church is ecclesia. It's not a word Jesus coined. It's not a new word. It was a word that was around. It was used for uh, political events, for social events. The word simply means in the Greek, a gathered together people for a specific purpose or reason. Here's what Jesus says. I'm going to build a gathered people together based on this immovable confession that I am the Christ. That is what we are as a church. And then look what Jesus says. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you know your history, think back. You know, we talk about Orwellian stuff happening right now in our culture, but Orwellian stuff has always been happening. Thought police has always been happening. 
So many uh, barbarians coming in to raid and, and unconcerned with the church and killing priests and, and, and eradicating uh, what, what God's people were trying to do on the earth. So many dictators coming. You've read about the book burnings and the Bible burnings. But the more this world tries to suppress the church through the power of the prince of this air, we're, we're not uninformed of Satan's schemes and devices, Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 6. The more the world tries to suppress the truth, the more the world tries to suppress Christ, the more the world tries to oppress uh, the people, the gathered people of God, here we still stand 2,000 years later. And in some of the areas that are most oppressed, I'm using Marxist terminology. I don't mean to. I promise I'm not that guy. But where, uh, where there is persecution, like places like China where the church is underground, people are giving their lives. Did you know, and this is an old statistic from like 10 years ago, but more people 10 years ago died in China than in the entire Fox's Book of Martyrs. People are being slaughtered over there for believing in Jesus. And yet the church is growing in China. One thing I know that I know that I know, until the return of Christ, there will be a gathered people coming together to worship, honor, and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And this is who we are. This is what we partake in. This is what we're participants in. The koinonia. This is what our, how we fellowship together with one another in Christ Jesus. How do I know the church is going to last? Because Jesus is building it. We're not. Unless the Lord builds the house, all that labor, labor in vain. Listen, we can be great leaders and we can read all the books and we can, we can figure everything out. But nothing we do will last. Only what Jesus builds is going to last. And Jesus is building his gathered people coming together for the purpose, the immovable mountain of our confession of who he is. The church honoring Christ as Lord. Look at Matthew chapter 28 real quick. Just a couple verses, you know what the Great Commission. So Jesus is building a church based off the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus lives, he dies, he raises, he spends some time with his disciples. And before he ascends into heaven, people ask me all the time, why did Jesus, why did he just stay? Because it wasn't, number one, it wasn't the Father's will. Number two, do you know where Jesus is right now? Right where we need him to be. He is what's called in session. Just like a court, right? When the gavel, right? If the court becomes in session. There's business to do. Jesus is in session right now with the Father. And guess what that session consists of? Jesus Christ calling your name out before the Father over and over and over again. Jesus Christ right now is praying for you. When you fall, when you're in the valley, Jesus Christ has got the ear of the Father. And he says, hey, yeah, I know this looks bad, but remember, my blood covers him, he's one of ours. This is what Jesus Christ is doing right now. It's what we need him to do, amen? Until his return, where we will spend eternity with him. But these are his final instructions. 
to the church that he's building based off the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. We're all on the same page, trekking, right? Final command, the great command, the great commission. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Here's why we shouldn't be, it's like I tell my kids, I ain't scared of nothing. Here's why we shouldn't be scared of anything as God's gathered together people in his name, right? Are there, are there social um, uh, persecutions for being Christian today, right? It used to be if you had a fish on your truck or a fish on your business card, it actually would help you out. But guess what's happening as the, the cultural tides are turning? People are taking not real Christians, but the nominal Christians who are only using the fish to get business. They're taking the fish off. We're going to see more and more of that as Christianity becomes a, a persecuted a group of marginalized group of people uh, in America and across the world. Much like the Jews right now are being pushed aside and marginalized under the attack of terrorist organizations. I'm going to get off track. I better get back. All authority belongs to Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus. The next, I can't wait for the next time they come and say, oh yeah, there's a new strain of COVID. You're going to have to shut the church down. No, we're not. You can say we have to shut down, but guess who's going to be here on Sunday morning if you'd like to join me? Oh, you like that one now. And some of you might say, Brent, Romans 13, you got to obey the law. Only if they, you only obey the law unless they're asking you to do something that Jesus commands us to do. Right? You, you don't obey the law then. You obey Jesus. Jesus is greater than the law. Read Acts chapter 4. They told him to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And uh, James and John, or Peter and John looked at him and was like, yeah, we can't do that. Sorry. You do whatever you have to do. But we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and what we have heard. And we can have courage in this. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Go therefore. Notice, go, it's a verb. Right, there's action here. Uh, uh, Nick and Tracy, wherever they are, they can't plant a church and stay here. Right, go, action. Go therefore and, underline it, make Disciples. What is a disciple? So many, especially young guys, they're like, oh, I want to be a disciple. Can I follow you around? That's, we're not, I'm not a rabbi. <laughs> but the word disciple simply means to become a pupil of, to become a student of, to, to follow. Jesus said, make disciples. Uh, preach the gospel. Make disciples. When people are converted, uh, help them follow me. That's what it is to be a disciple. And Jesus wants us, his great commission, the last command he gives, make disciples of all nations. No one is exempt. No one's exempt. All nations. God's going to save people, from, the Bible says, from the four corners of the earth. And that does not mean the world is flat. Those are 
directed north, south, east, and west, right? From, from every direction all over the world, God is going to use his church to save people from every nation, just like he promised Abraham way back in Genesis 17. Man, isn't God good? We're seeing the fulfillment of scriptures that are thousands of years old back in Genesis. We're seeing it as churches rise up. Every inhabited continent has the presence of the church of Jesus Christ. It's the largest, largest uh, faith group in the world. In just three years of public ministry, that happened. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Why do we still baptize people? Because Jesus said to do it. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you until the end of the age. Show that slide real quick. So how are we making disciples here at four points? We have four points. Love, devotion, passion, legacy. Love, God loves us. Devotion, we love God. We'll talk about that next week. Passion, we love others. We'll talk about uh, the following week. And legacy, love lives on. Let's look at this love. God loves us. Because everything begins with God's love. Everything begins with God's will. Everything begins with what God is doing in the world. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Why do we start with God loves us? Because everything begins with the... Why do we even gather together? We gather together on the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Everything begins with the gospel. And just in case you don't, and listen, when we get to the end of this thing, and if you fill out, uh, and by the way, all members, we do this every year. We don't want to be like, you know, First Baptist, 100 years old, and 10,000 people on the membership roll, and 9,940 of them are dead. We don't want to do that. So we annual, you renew every year. You can do that if you already know you want to be a member here. There is a question. If you're a first time, if you sign up to be a first time, there's a question. What is the gospel? You wouldn't believe how many people have been in church all their lives and cannot answer that question. They put things down like the Bible. Well, the Bible contains the gospel, but just know it, just having a Bible won't save you. What, what is this why? Everything begins with us. So what is the gospel? Let me break it down to you really quick. I got four minutes. Awesome. I'm going to teach you the gospel like I teach my children. Six easy points. And look, this is not, this is a truncated view, but it's, it's a more complete view. You can spend your entire life studying the Bible and seeing just the beauty of the gospel as it grows and grows and grows. We talked about justification and sanctification in Romans. We talked about glorification in 1 Corinthians 15 just a couple of weeks ago in The Only Good King. We talked about adoption. There's lots of different avenues and, and aspects of the gospel. But here's the basic points you need to understand and believe to be saved. Number one, God created Everything good. Nothing on planet Earth happening right now can be blamed on God. No one can judge God. No one can think little of God because God is good and everything he makes is good. 
Genesis 1.1, he says, it says, in the beginning, God. And what did God do? He created. He created all things. And then at the end of his creation, at the end of Adam and Eve, the pinnacle of his creation, he looked out at all he had made and he said, it is very good. And there was morning and evening on the sixth day, Genesis chapter 1.31. The Bible says God's good and everything he makes is good. So he can't be blamed for any of our issues, any of our problems. You can't be mad at him. So who can we be mad at? Because when we turn on our TVs, the world's not good. All the sin, all the problems, all the heartache, all the sickness. Where does it all come from? Who can we blame? This is a beautiful thing right here. Number two. You want to blame somebody? Look in the mirror. We're the ones that messed this up. Each and every one of us. Now, I know, and Jesus says the gospel's offensive, and here's why it's offensive, because some of you are in here and you've been told your entire life, you are special. (laughs) You're never going to do anything wrong. You are a unicorn. Even when you, when I have to change your diaper, it was just Skittles. It was a rainbow. (laughs) It never stunk. It never smelled. All right? But look, if you'll just look in the mirror for half a second, you will know that's not true. God created everything good, so what's the problem? We sinned. We messed everything up. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, uh, the Dalai Lama, Buddha, Muhammad, whoever you want to, whatever religious leader, whatever, Jordan Peterson, Doug Wilson, uh, John MacArthur, Brent Stevens, whoa, chief of sinners right here. (laughs) We have all sinned, every one of us. Everybody you've ever looked up to, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same sinking boat. And there's a penalty to be paid for sin. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. You go to Chick-fil-A and they say, I'll pay you $11 to work for an hour. You work for an hour, you get a check for $11. You sin You get death. That's the wage of sin. And all have sinned and all deserve death and all deserve the wrath of God. And guess what? There's nothing we can do. You got to know the bad news before you know the good news. God did everything right. We messed everything up. And there's nothing we could do. So God does something on our behalf. God becomes flesh and dwells among us and lives the perfect human life that we have not lived. John 1 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's what that means God left a throne in eternity and came all the way down into space and time that He created and wrapped Himself in human flesh. And, and where we failed, He succeeded. He never had an impure motivation. He never spoke an untrue word. He never did anything wrong. He never failed to do something right. He righteously, he satisfied every righteous requirement of the law of God on planet earth. He lived the perfect life the way God intended in the perfect creation. 
Jesus fulfilled and lived a perfect life. And then he died in our place. for our, Well, he lived a perfect life. How do we know? 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did what we could not. And then what did he do? Then he died in our place for our sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance from the Scriptures. When you're talking to that person who says the, the cross is just symbolic, it's not symbolic. Jesus had to absorb the wrath of God on the cross. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. All Christ's perfection, he imputes into you. He covers you with his perfection while taking all your sin past present and future, placing it on his shoulders and absorbing the wrath of God and, and taking the wage that you deserved for your sin. This is what Jesus Christ did with his perfect life. He knocked you out of the way and took the wrath of God upon himself, but he didn't stay dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, he rose conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. And just like God promised through the prophets, he was raised on the third day, securing our victory over the grave, securing our victory over death, securing our inheritance in eternity, glorified with Christ forever. This is what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And now comes our response. What is the response to this good news? We believe and confess and repent of our sin. Skip John 3, 16, go to Romans 10, 9. For if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But you don't understand my past is so icky and I've got so much uh, shame and guilt. You just don't understand what I've done. If you believe in your heart, let the Father help you this morning see who Jesus is. If you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, and you confess with your mouth, uh, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, believe in your heart, you will be saved. Look at Acts chapter uh, 2, verse 36. And this is Peter's first sermon as the New Testament church. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's the Messiah. Verse 37. Now when they heard, just like I hope some of you got drugged to church this morning and you're hearing for the first time that you're the problem, but there's a hope and there's a Savior for you. They heard and they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what, what can we do? Jesus, or Peter says, repent and be baptized. This is our role. And listen to me very carefully. Because there's nothing more powerful on planet earth than what I have just spoken to you. God's perfect. We're sinners. God came, lived perfect, died in our place for our sin, rose conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. There's nothing more powerful than that. When I was 15 years old, let me tell you the difference between religion and this gospel real quick. 
I grew up in a religious home. Many of you grew up. I don't know if you've heard Nate Bargatze's uh, growing up in the 80s with super Christian versus Christian today. I grew up in super Christian times. Couldn't wear shorts. I mean, just all kinds of rules and regulations. That's religion. Growing up in a religion, at 15 years old, man, I wanted to do good. I wanted to please mom and dad. I wanted to, you know, please youth pastors. I, I wanted. But I just realized at 15 years old, I can't do this. These rules are too much. I was smothered under the, the religious orders. That's not Christianity. Christianity. Why did God come? God came because he knew you couldn't. And that's what I realized at 21 years old, man, when Jesus, when the Father helped me and blessed me and helped me to see who Jesus was, I realized that what I couldn't do, he did for me. Of course I couldn't do it. Of course you can't do it. That's the point of the gospel. What you can't do, he does. This is grace. This is truth. This is our hope. Past, present, and future sin all wrapped up. Absorbed. The wrath of God in the person and work of Christ Jesus on our behalf that we might be free indeed to love God and to serve God the rest of our lives. This is why we gather This is the message we continuously and constantly proclaim. We do so as the church. We meet on Sunday mornings, not because there's anything special about Sunday. It's just when the New Testament, it was when God, Jesus was raised from the dead. The New Testament churches worship Jesus on Sunday, so we follow suit in our culture. It just makes sense because we we've been worshiping on Sunday for a long time. Most people are after work, but Colossians 2 tells us it's not about the day. But we come together, gathered people on Sunday, to proclaim this gospel, our hope. This is the first step in our process, communicating and constantly proclaiming God loves us and has done everything for us that we need to be his people on planet Earth. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I thank you and I bless your name. I pray you'd be with your people. Father, those who are rule followers and think somehow they're saved by following the rules, Jesus, help them to see their self-righteousness in the mirror and understand the gospel. God, for those who are beat so low and just don't see how you could possibly love them at all, Father, help them see the gospel. You do love, and we love you for it. It is in Jesus' name every Christian said, amen.